Go ahead and open back up to Philippians chapter 4. What do you spend most of your time thinking about? And I know that will change often, minute to minute, day to day, and week to week. I think if we're honest, a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about a certain thing this week, myself included. But what dominates our thinking is often very telling. What we think is important or scary or looming can come to consume our thinking and then impact how we feel or how we even act. To put it simply, we think about what we think is important. In our inner life, tells us a lot about who we are as individuals. It tells us about what we love, and again, as to what we find most pressing. Sadly, today, we often lack that ability to stop and to think deeply and seriously about just about anything. Everything is in a soundbite. Everything is in 150 characters or whatever it is on Twitter nowadays. We have unlimited access to media, knowledge, and entertainment at almost any minute in time. You have that little supercomputer in your pocket that's constantly pulling at your heart and your mind. And that often prevents us from stopping, not being distracted, and thinking deeply. We are a very distracted people. Why is all of this so important? Well, because Christ stressed the absolute importance of your and my inner life. That inner life impacts how you live today, and it ultimately impacts where you will end up in the future. For example, in Matthew 15, Jesus says this. He says, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. We often want to correct the external actions, but Jesus is always pointing us inward. Those actions come from a heart that wants those things. Jesus puts it slightly differently in Matthew 6, verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your inner life determines what you will do, what you think, what you desire. Your inner life determines your outer life. We can't separate the two from, from each other. And that's a rather humbling thought. If we took the time to think about what we're thinking about, we'd be humbled. And that's why Jesus spent so much time especially with the Pharisees, saying, you can have all those outward actions deal, dealt with, but you're just whitewashed tombs. Because inside, you are just a raging hot mess. I think most of us would admit that we think too much and too often about ourselves. What dominates Levi's thought life? What Levi wants. My own heart and my own Desires, And when we desire something, we have this tendency to think on it and to turn it over in our minds over and over and over again until we get that thing that we want. So it grows to this greater and greater prominence in our minds and our hearts. It can be anything. It can be stuff, or it can be stuff, 
or money, or popularity, or sex, or career, or likes and shares. But the sad thing is, is we do this, and we do it on repeat. You want the thing, it grows in your heart and your mind until you actually reach out to get it, and it may have an immediate pleasure, but then you start right back desiring something else again. And it grows and it grows until you reach out and grab that, and we just keep going and going and going, and none of that satisfaction we think we're going to get actually comes. It is what Solomon describes as chasing after the wind. You keep trying to catch the thing that you can't actually catch. And that's really who we are. Our thinking, our feelings, our actions, and our character are all bound together. They all work together to turn us into who we are as an individual. A biblical view of a man or an individual is that our mind determines what we think is good and true. That's what your mind does. It determines what it thinks is good and true. And then your heart desires what your mind believes to be good and true. And then your will seeks out what your heart desires. Why is the mind important? Because you can cut off that entire string of events by changing what you think about and what you think is good and true. The key to growing in your faith, to growing in holiness, to changing, starts with changing how you think, which changes how you feel. And sadly, today we, we flip that. You know, if you go outside the church, instead of trying to change what you think is true and then change our feelings, we are often told that whatever you feel is true and your thinking should change in accordance with your feelings. And if that's true, you can be tossed to and fro from minute to minute. And if we're honest, that's true of many of us, and it's certainly true of our society as a whole. Whatever the latest feeling is dictates what we believe to be true. And this is where Philippians 4, 8, and 9 meets us. Paul reminds us here of the importance of our thought life, and then he encourages us to think about or to think on these things. As he's wrapping up his letter here with all of this teaching, he says, if I'm going to summarize it, I want you to think on these things. And this will have an impact in your life now. Paul's not just pointing the Philippians to, well, if you think on these things, one day you'll make it to heaven. Certainly that's in view here, but he wants it to impact the day-to-day -day life and the day-to-day -day issues of the church in Philippi and the people there. So I have four things here, four truths from this passage that I want us to think on that will help us, as Paul would have us, to think on what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And the first is this, and we have to get this right. The command to think on what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and so on rests firmly upon the belief that there are things that are objectively that. Let me say that again. The command to think on what is true assumes, necessarily assumes, that there are things that are objectively true that you should be thinking upon. That there are things that are objectively just that you should be thinking upon. Things that are objectively honorable and beautiful and lovely. That is the biblical understanding of this world. We are conditioned to think today that truth is a personal choice relative to each individual 
But such thinking is not only absurd, it is self-refuting. To say that there is no truth whatsoever, no universal truth whatsoever, is to make a universal truth claim. It's a self-defeating, self-refuting statement. Anybody who stops to think about it honestly for a few minutes knows that it's not true. It's impossible, and you can't really live that way, and no one really lives that way. They just throw that up when there's something they don't want to let go of. So you can stress this, you can scream to the heavens that truth is relative. You can, as many are saying, that things like logic and reason and science are just Western and oppressive ways to know truth. But reality doesn't care. Reality doesn't care if you think truth is relative. You can jump off a cliff, but gravity still exists and you will die, no matter how sincerely you believe that you are a bird and that you can fly. You are not God, and the world does not bend to your desires. And you will never be God. And the truth will never be determined by what Levi thinks. Everybody lives by a standard. Everyone appeals to some ultimate authority, some form of a God. There's always a God of every system of thought, every person's heart has someone or something that sits upon the throne. The question every Christian has to ask is, is that actually God? Do I actually have God sitting upon the throne of how I'm making decisions, how I'm feeling, how I'm living? And if we're honest, I think we'd say that's kind of a mixture in most of our lives. But we try to grow degree by degree. For others... Things like science sit on the throne, or human reason, or experience, or the self, or the pursuit of pleasure. And all of those things get turned into someone's functional God. That thing they appeal to. And this explains so much of what's going on in our world today. Not just in America, but throughout the entire West. Why do people get so angry when you disagree with their lifestyle choices or whatever? Because they've been conditioned that they are their own God. And when you question their God, you've committed blasphemy. You can't do that. You can't question God. And so, we've had what's going on in our world where the, those who preach t- tolerance have become the most intolerant people. Those who pre- preach tolerance have become the new fundamentalists. And they put those old fundamentalists from the mid-1900s to shame. You disagree with us, and man, we're going to kick you out of all of society. You can't disagree with God or you will be silenced. How then, though, should us Christians respond? Well, Paul commands us to think on what is objectively true, what is objectively lovely or beautiful, what is virtuous, and not to make it up yourself. The world says you make up what you think those things are and then live according to them. God says to you, those things are objectively that, now conform your life to those things. And that is a whole different world to live in. One seeks God and seeks to submit himself to God, and the other turns himself into God and seeks to make the world into his own image. The problem is, is we can't really do that. And for us Christians in a day of confusion, the natural question becomes, how do I know then what is good, true, and excellent? Well, As I've said, first, don't look within. 
you nor I am an adequate foundation for that kind of truth. Truth is just another word for reality, what is actually real. And we know truth through knowing the God who created everything. And you know God through knowing his word. God has not left you as a spiritual orphan. He has not left you to search for truth on your own. God has come and sought you out through his son and through his word so that you can know him. So you can know what is good and true and excellent. One of the core tenets of the faithful church for generations and the Jews before that is that God's word is perfect. And it is the final authority over all of life. There is nothing that compares to God's word because God's word is breathed out. It came from his mouth. It reflects him and who he is. To deny God's word is to deny God himself. Not because there's anything magical about our Bibles, but because he spoke it. That is how you and I can know what is good and true and beautiful. All knowledge comes from God. He is the infinite personal God. And in his infiniteness, he is wholly different than us. He is eternal. He is not dependent upon anything. He is great and holy, and none can question his rule. But in his personal nature, one God in three persons, we are like him. You can know truth because you are like God. You are made in his image. You can have meaning and purpose and love in this life, and you can speak and think and reason like God because you were made to be like him. So God has spoken to us in his word so that you and I might know him, the foundation of all of these things, and then know what is good and right and true. This is that unchanging, firm anchor that God offers to you in a world of chaos. And far too many of us barely give it a second thought. If what we think about and what we spend our time thinking about tells us a lot about ourselves, how little we think about God's word is surely a bad sign. If you want to know truth, justice, what is worthy of praise, then start reading through your Bible and think on these things. God has given you truth so that you don't have to wander aimlessly. He has given you truth so that you do not have to figure it out on your own. Rather, he has spoken so that you can submit to what is already true. So fill your mind with these things. Second, these objectively true, good, and just, and lovely things are things that we are to think on. First, making that command assumes that there are objective things that are that, Second, because those things exist, you should think on those things. No one wants to believe a lie. And what makes lies so dangerous is that they are believable. I mean, even today, this is the sad thing, some, there are prominent lies which should make anybody with clear thinking take a step back and just kind of laugh. 
But these truths are heralded as unattackable and unassailable. And, that, and therefore they become believable. The emperor has no clothes on. But if everyone says he does, it can become kind of convincing, even though reality is different. As I said already, truth is another word for reality, which means a lie is another word for that which is unreal, that which is not reality. To believe a lie is to lose touch with reality. To be insane is to lose touch with reality. If you cut yourself off from the foundation of all truth, all reality, don't be surprised when everything gets crazy and insane. Yet, as we, we think about that and we look out into our world, we know that some people will say this, that all truth is God's truth. I have no, no problem with that statement. I just have a problem with how it's often used. If somebody will find in all of the, the sea of errors the tiniest kernel of truth, and they will say, well, see, see, this isn't that bad because there's this truth, and all truth is God's truth. Well, yes, all truth comes from God, but the reverse is also true. All lies come from Satan. He is dubbed the father of lies. And the more lies we believe, the more we are cut off from reality, the more we are cut off from the source of reality, God himself. So Paul wants us to think and reckon on what is true. To think means here, it's not just to have it go in one ear and come out the other. Think here is to dwell on it. To turn it over in your mind again and again. To let it to start to shape who you are and how you think. And this list here includes more than just truth. It includes things that are beautiful or lovely, as the ESV puts it, and that which is good and honorable and praiseworthy. Not a mere intellectual exercise, but something that you build your life on. I want to read you a quote here from C.S. Lewis. I came across it this week, and it, it struck me. Joel will make fun of me later because I'm not the biggest C.S. Lewis fan. Last time I quoted C.S. Lewis, he said, you're, you're pretty desperate when you're quoting him. That's unfair, but I, I like C.S. Lewis to an extent. But he wrote this about his life before becoming a Christian. He says, the two hemispheres of my mind, who I was before Christ, I had two parts of my mind, were in sharpest conflict. On the one side, a many-island sea of poetry and myth. And on the other, a glib, shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved and I believed to be imaginary. And nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. So here's C.S. Lewis before he's converted to Christ. And he's got this obsession with myth and fairy tales because they're so full of beauty or loveliness. And yet, in the back of his mind, he knows that none of this is true, but this is what he wants to be true. But everything that he knows to be true in his atheism and his rationalism and his naturalism, he finds that all of this is grim and meaningless. That is, without God, none of it matters. If Darwin and company are right and there is no God, then all of this is just some tragic cosmic accident and there is no meaning in life whatsoever. And that is what Lewis was struggling with. And yet he still loved the poetry and the myths 
and the arts because he saw meaning and beauty in those things. And he could not escape that nagging feeling. Many of your unbelieving friends and coworkers and neighbors, and even some of you here today, live in that same place. We cannot help but try to make meaning out of this world. Is it any wonder that so many people in our society today are obsessed with things like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter, video games. They have all of these ways to escape reality because reality they've been living in is devoid of any meaning, beauty, or purpose. So they escape from that into these fantasy worlds where all of those things are real. People find their identities in these things. They dress up and they go to conferences in these, th- these things. These things become basically their de facto religion because they have this deep-seated yearning for meaning and beauty. But they grow up in a world and in a school system that tells them those things don't really exist. When Emily and I visited New Zealand the second time, we went to where they filmed Hobbiton. And as they were giving us a tour of, of Hobbiton, I did not dress up. <laughs> I did not dress up. They told, uh, they told the story of this very tall German man who came there to visit, and he was dressed up as a hobbit. Now, as, as a tall man, I don't identify with the hobbits really much at all. But he dressed up as a hobbit, and as they went around Hobbiton and the, the tour ended, they told everyone to get on the bus, and he said, no, I'm not leaving. This is my home. I'm staying And they had to have this long debate with this tall German man to get him back on the bus and tell him, no, you're not really a hobbit. While that is an extreme case, certainly, it points to what is going on in our society. He told that man is just a highly evolved monkey. Everything happened by accident. Meaning and truth are are just meaningless, and you can just make it up on your own because there is no greater anything to this life, and mankind is walking around looking for that meaning and beauty and purpose, and the church has it. The church has it. That the true truth behind all of those myths and fairy tales, as Lewis and Tolkien would say, the true myth behind all of them, all of that yearning you feel in those stories, is the gospel. It's the true myth that all grand stories point to. And Paul says, think on those good things in those lovely things. In other words, what you think about will shape you. You are what you think. We become more like what dominates our thinking. You put garbage in your mind and you will reap garbage in your life. You dwell more on yourself, you will become a selfish person. You dwell more on lust, and you will reap sexual immorality. You dwell more on worry, and you will reap greater and greater anxiety. And the call here is to think on, meditate on truth and goodness and beauty because God uses that to change you. God still saves. His word still has power. There are few things in this life that are more important than asking yourself, what do I spend most of my time thinking about? What do I think is most important? So my encouragement to you is to stop being so utterly distracted. Put down your phone. 
15 minutes a day. Turn off the music, shut off the television. Take time to think on what is good and right and lovely and excellent and true, and you will be surprised by how much your life changes. When the final day comes, no one from our age will be able to say, I didn't have time to spend in reading God's word and prayer. Your time on your, your smartphone, your weekly screen time app, testifies to the exact opposite. It's about discipline. God wants the best for you, and he has given you truth, excellence, and beauty in a foundation. And the only question is, is will you use it? Will you let that shape you instead of everything else? Third thing to think on, merely thinking about these things is not enough. We are to believe them, and we are to put them into practice. Verse 9, so he says, think on these things, and then in verse 9 he says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Do the thinking first, and then you start to live those things out. This is not some call to become some academic or intellectual person who spends all of his time up in his head. Rather, it is a practical call to think on things so that you can live differently. That's where this passage often gets wholly distorted, is we can see this call to think on these things and almost use it like those video games or those movies as a way to escape this world and just to pretend that none of this stuff is really going on and all that really matters is what is going on in heaven. But Paul writes these words to us to impact how they were living their day-to-day lives. Church in Philippi, I've just spent all these words teaching you how to live. Now go live that way. It's meant to impact not just the life to come, but also today. The old saying is that Christians can become so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good, but we can't let that become true of us. If we become so insulated in our Bible studies and everything else that we're of no good to anyone in this world, then we've missed what the Bible's actually getting at. It's not just about knowledge. I think part of this has become a problem is because we've bought into a lot of the ideas of secularism. And secularism is just the idea that there are parts of life where religion belongs. Religion belongs in the private part of life. But everywhere else, it is not to be. It is not to touch those things. Those areas are secular, free of religion. But the problem is, is that nature hates a vacuum. While formal religion may not be involved in these areas, other things have moved in and have become functional religions. And if we're not careful, Christianity can become comfortable with that kind of thinking. We can privatize our faith. We can exile it from our thinking on everything except for Sunday mornings. But the New Testament knows nothing about that kind of Christianity. It knows nothing about a limited Jesus who is only Lord over your private life. Instead, it proclaims a Christ who sits at the right hand of God and who rules over every molecule in this universe. That is, he has claim over everything. You cannot put Jesus in a cage. They tried to put him in a tomb, and that didn't work either. Paul is writing to change people's current lives. 
And that is why Levi spends so much time preaching and teaching. Do I want souls saved? Yes. Do I want your lives to be better now? Yes. Not by the worldly standards of better, But it said that when the Messiah would come, he would turn fathers to sons, sons to fathers, husbands to wives, that there would be healing in this life. Because if these things take root in our lives, we begin to heal. Things begin to change. And if they don't, the problem isn't in what God has revealed. The problem is is that we're not listening. Fourth, As we do this, Paul says, God will be with us. Look again at verse 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What more could we really ask for? What more could we ask for? This is not some call that you and me need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just make ourselves better. Instead, Paul says, as he said earlier in this book, that work your salvation out with fear and trembling, but it is God who is working in you. Do these things, and as you do these things, God himself will meet you there so that these things actually work. It's all grace. He's the one who does the heavy lifting, and we should be very, very thankful for that. So we dare not miss this. But the God who gave us his word, he didn't have to, but he did it because he desires our good. And the God who gave us his word and who desires our good is also willing to go along with us on the journey. He is the one who moves and acts and draws us in and corrects us and guides us both through his word and by his spirit. That is our great promise, the God of peace will be with you. And this peace is not just some absence of conflict, because you're going to have a lot of that, but it is the peace that comes between us and God as our sin is dealt with. Your primary problem is not that you have low self-esteem, it's not that you don't have the right job or the right spouse or whatever. Your primary problem is that you are a sinner before a holy God. And your sin severs your relationship with him. And your secondary problem is that your sin ruins your relationships with everybody else. And if we don't have a way of objectively dealing with that sin, then there's no hope for any of it. None whatsoever. We cannot forget that we primarily live in this moral universe where there is right and wrong. But through the work of Christ, peace can and is restored. He took our sin so that we could be healed. He took our sin so that we could be forgiven. He took our sin so that your families could be set right. He took our sin so that we could become more like Christ day to day. The gospel is primarily that you might be saved from the wrath of God. But with that comes a renewing of your life here and now. Things can get better through the power of the gospel. But you must think on these things, put them into practice, and the God of peace will meet you. God brings peace through Christ, and all that is but a foreshadow 
of the final peace that comes when he returns. A kingdom where there will be no sin, no death, no tears, no disease, none of that. Everything set right. And there is your beautiful picture. So the life of the mind is vital to this life and the life to come. And as we think on that, let me give you a few applications. First, some of us here today need to start changing our thought patterns. Some of us have some long-standing ways of thinking that we've ingrained in our hearts and our minds, and they need to be cut off. They need to start to change. And the only way that can happen is by pressing into God's grace more and more. As the Spirit presses in and you feel that tension this morning, you see how your wrong thinking is poisoning parts of your lives, don't make an excuse. Make plans to start changing the way you think by dwelling on that which is good, right, and true, and beautiful. Some of us need to start disciplining ourselves to make this kind of thinking a regular occurrence. In other words, you can't just pray to God at the end of the service, please do this, and then go home and sit on the couch and go, why isn't God doing anything? Put it into practice. You may think, some of you may think that, well, my life's not that bad, so I don't really need to do that. Do that at your own risk. Devote regular time, consistent time, to studying the truth of God and applying it to your heart first. One of the most dangerous things we do when we open our Bible is go, man, I really wish John would hear this, or I really wish Sally would hear this. No, no, no. What do I need to hear first? What do I need to change first? Become introspective in that way. Where is my heart and where is my mind? Some of us need to cut off the lies and the bad influences that we are taking in. Just as thinking on what is good, right, and true has a positive impact, believing lies or dwelling on lies or taking in only garbage has a negative impact in your life. And it can become a vicious cycle of chaos. This is why Jesus says that if your eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. If your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. Take the radical steps that you need to take to end it today. Cut off the lies out of your life so that you can dwell on the truth. And lastly, rejoice in the grace of God. It is he who sustains us. It is he who saves us. It is he who transforms us through his truth, by his grace, because of the work of Jesus Christ. The truth by which you must live and think is found primarily in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have not left us as spiritual orphans. That you have not only given us your son, that you have not only given us your spirit, but you have also spoken to us in a way in your word that we might know you, we might know ourselves better, that we might see our needs and that we might know truth and goodness and beauty. Lord, I pray that as your, your word has gone out this morning, that you would bring life. That we might start to dwell and think on those good things. And that as we do that, we might be transformed slowly but surely to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And that as we do that, we might rejoice all the more in what you have done for us, for we could never have done it ourselves. We praise you this morning. Amen.